So this week, we continue in our series, We Believe. Last week, we took a look at the fifth petition of the Apostles' Creed, which states, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. We spent some time working through forgiveness, what, what that looks like, what we might think it looks like, but actually doesn't, and how God has ultimately forgiven us. Again, if you missed that message or any other message from this pulpit here at Calvary, you can find them on the website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. This week, we're bringing the Lord's Prayer to, to a close by hitting the sixth and seventh petitions, as well as the prayer's conclusion, which altogether states, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a pretty powerful closing. And to get a picture of what Jesus is presenting to us in the final lines of this prayer, we'll be turning once again to the book of Ephesians, and this week we'll be in chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. This is just before Paul's well-known introduction of the armor of God, but before he gets there, he gives the church in Ephesus and us today a clear picture of the enemy, a clear picture of the forces aligned against us and ultimately against God. And with these verses, we have, in some ways, some final instruction as we face the evils of the world and as we wait in expectation for the return of our king. Again, the text is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn there. If you prefer a Bible in your hands, but you forgot yours at home today, there should be uh, one in the, pew of the, in the back of the pew in front of you. And alternatively, you are welcome to follow along with me as the words will also be on the screens beside me. We read the word of the Lord this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. What does temptation look like for you? What are the things that tempt you? Temptation is weird, right? Like, like there are some things that tempt us that aren't necessarily good for us, but aren't sinful either like a nice loaf of bread, especially if that bread has some, like, sugar swirls in it. My wife Karen makes this bread called babka. I don't know if you've had babka before, but Karen made some, of, uh, made some for some of our friends, and, and shortly after we, we gave that out, we got a text asking, how are you guys, like, how do you guys not weigh, like, 300 pounds? There isn't anything sinful about babka. It's not wrong to eat bread. It's not against the Ten Commandments or God's law to eat sugar. 
It's not exactly healthy either, right? Like, like there are better things, healthier things to consume than delicious bread. I don't necessarily eat them, but I know that they exist. I've, I, I've been told that that's true by t- people that I trust. The fact remains that, that not all temptation is bad. Not all things that tempt us are evil. And whether we like it or not, temptations in our lives isn't all bad either. Part of our sanctification, part of our growing to be more like Christ takes place when we face temptation. And so God allows us to face temptations. He is not our tempter. God's not the the parents in the video, right? Putting the temptations in front of his children just to see if they're going to mess up. But he does allow others to set the candies before us that we might be stretched, that we might continue to have practice in resisting temptation, that we might grow stronger in our spiritual walk with the Lord. We are called to resist temptation. How will we get better at doing that if we never face it? I really appreciate the way that this is put in the explanation of Luther's small catechism, our red book, which states, what does it mean when we pray, lead us not into temptation? To which the book responds, God tempts no one to sin. But we pray in this petition that he would so guard and preserve us that the devil, the world, and our own human nature may not deceive us nor lead us into error and unbelief, despair, and other great and shameful sins. But when tempted, we may finally prevail and gain the victory. God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. He's not sliding that temptation in front of you just to see if you'll be faithful to him. And when we pray this petition, we are praying that God would guard and preserve us so that when we face temptations, we would not fall from our faith, would not give in to sin or despair or the other fruits of our failed choices, but would instead prevail that we would choose right. God does not tempt us with evil, but neither does he spare us from temptation. Neither does he shield us from it completely. And our enemy is not a fool. He's not dumb. He's not the silly little man in red with the horns and the pitchfork, the the caretaker of hell that our society desires to paint him as, to minimalize him as. No, man, he's crafty. Dude's smart. And he is way more powerful than I am comfortable with. And he has no qualms over putting those candies in front of us just to watch us fail and in our failure cause pain to our Father in heaven. Satan absolutely tempts us with evil. So church, what evil is it that you are tempted to do? What is this sin against your spouse, your family, your friends, yourself, your God? What is the sin that calls to you that you struggle to resist? We all have one or two or ten. We don't like talking about them. We don't really like it when they're brought up like this. This isn't fun. We don't like talking about it. We we don't want to be reminded. Oh, how we can relate to Adam and Eve in the garden taking in the question of the serpent. Did God really say? Did God really say you shouldn't eat of the fruit? 
Is it because he wants to keep you under his boot? Is it because he doesn't want you to be as powerful as he is? The question struck a chord for Adam and Eve. There there isn't a lot written before this about the relationship that, that God has had with them. We don't know exactly what the interactions between God and and man were like before the fall. But there is no doubt that Satan is pushing buttons, asking questions that prey on weaknesses. It's, It's what he does. As I'm faced with my own temptations, I am Adam in the garden. Though the questions are a little different, right? Did God really say? Did God really say you shouldn't exasperate your children? Did God really say you should love your wife as Christ loves the church? And what does that even mean? How can he expect that of us? Where where is the line that, that we shouldn't cross when it comes to idols and lust, envy and gluttony? Did God give you a line, the enemy asks? Did he make it crystal clear? How far are you willing to push it? Will God be so mad if you cross the line? It's just a toe. Surely that wouldn't be a big deal. God just doesn't want you to have all the fun that this world has to offer. He's keeping you from experiences that would bring you pleasure. Would would a God who loves you do that? And if it's really such a big deal... He'll forgive you, right? I mean, you're already forgiven, so why not just enjoy the forgiveness you've been given and take some pleasure from this difficult time of suffering he's subjected you to here on earth? The enemy, the adversary, Satan, the king of lies, he knows how to twist words and questions. He knows how to turn the tables. He's not some stupid gatekeeper. He's a genius who is consumed with the burning passion to hurt God, and he's using us to do it. Satan doesn't want people trusting in the truth. He doesn't want people coming to faith. He wants as much company in an eternity of suffering as he can get, for he knows that everyone with him will be suffering, and he knows that every person with him in torment, that is one more knife in God's back, one more person God loves so much that has rejected him, that is not celebrating an eternity with him, that has turned him down, that has turned from him, that has chosen the lies of the adversary over the love of the Father. The enemy lies to us, church. He's not honest. He's not truthful. He lies for his own gain, and when we listen to him, it results in hurt and suffering, and there is a deep and sinful part of us that enjoys the lies, that likes hearing them, that likes listening to them, that believes them. For by nature... We are sinners. And Satan appeals to that nature and damages us and the church and hurts God. Through the lies, through appealing to our sinfulness, he divides us. He he coddles our selfishness. He stokes the fire of our anger. He whispers to our suspicions. He enforces our held stereotypes. He pushes against our patience. 
He blinds us to the hurt and the pain that we do to each other. Satan loves division politically, socioeconomically, racially, religiously, personally. Dude can't get enough of it. And so Satan is pleased when his church is divided. God works for unity, Satan for division. When we look at our churches, do we see unity or division? How has COVID been for our churches? How has the political climate of the past decade been for our churches? As culture outside the church changes, things within our churches need to change. Not, not the big things, not, not scripture or our understanding of it. Secular culture must not influence how we read and understand the Bible, but the church should absolutely adapt to meeting the spiritual needs of the culture outside it. We are called to go out into our neighborhoods and communities with the love of Christ, loving our neighbor. We are called to be a place where those who have never stepped foot inside a church feel welcome. We are called to be a hospital for sinners and not a museum for the saints. We are called by God to be unified in his mission. And yet, how many of our churches have gotten distracted? How many of our churches have listened to the lies of the enemy, even as they sing the praises of the Father? How much abuse have we overlooked? How much injustice have we averted our eyes from? Have we let politics influence our theology? Have we let little things become big things? How many of our churches have split over trivial things, like the color of the carpet or the types of songs that are sung? The enemy knows how to push our buttons, Calvary. He knows our sacred cows, the things that we've made big that don't need to be big. It might be change we want to see. It might be things that we don't want to change. He knows how to push, how to lie to our hearts. And so though we have not divided over the carpet, though this puppy, this puppy probably needs to be replaced at some point here. <laughs> so we'll see how we navigate the, the carpet color quandary when that time comes, right? And, and we're not splitting over the, the balance of hymns and choruses. Those things haven't caused us to break, though we do not struggle in those exact areas. What are the areas that we struggle in, Calvary? Because make no mistake, Satan has not forgotten us or overlooked us. Our enemy does not want God's mission to go forward. And that is what we pray for in this church every day of the week, not just on Sundays. So make no mistake, he will do his best to bring division. He will do his best to push on the dark places of our hearts to turn us against each other and against our neighbor and to convince us that we do not get along and that we do not belong together, that we have not been called to this mission together. He'd rather us focus on what annoys us about each other than how God has called us to work together for the glory of his kingdom, the kingdom that is here and the kingdom that is coming. Unless we fall into that trap, lest you rem let us remember the wise, fantastic words of Paul in our text this morning. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Our enemy is not the person on the other side of the political aisle or across the church pew. Our enemy is the spiritual forces of evil in this present darkness. And so we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We ask the Lord to give us strength to resist the temptations that come our way and to strengthen us for the fight against the evil in our hearts, in our world, and in our churches. For it is only God who can win the battle. He is the one, he's the only one who has a shot. And that's where things get exciting, isn't it? Because we already know who wins. When Adam and Eve, back when they were in the garden, and they were convinced by the lies of the adversary, and they ate the fruit, bringing sin into the world, they recognized their nakedness and shame, and they hid from God. But he sought them out, and he clothed them. But before he pronounced the repercussions of what we have come to call the fall, before he gave Adam and Eve the bad news of their new reality, he spoke to Satan. And in his declaration to his fallen commander, the betrayer, the attempted usurper, to the adversary, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Adam and Eve have no idea what God is talking about. They got no clue what's going on here, but Satan did. He knew that God was talking about Jesus. Before he even gets to the bad news from Adam and Eve, God is letting Satan know that there is a plan that has been put in place to restore humanity to relationship with God, to reconcile the broken created with their perfect creator. And that plan is Jesus Christ, who came from heaven, God, born into flesh, fully God and fully man, in ways that we will not be able to truly understand or reconcile until we have been made new in perfection at the end of times. And Jesus came, and he lived with us, and he ate with us, and he laughed with us, and he cried with us. He healed the sick, he cast out demons, he fed thousands, he performed miracles. And because of the deep sin in our hearts, and the culture in the church denying the truth revealed before their eyes, Jesus was betrayed. And he was sentenced to death. And up the hill to Calvary, he stumbled with a heavy wooden cross over his shoulders. And on that hill, the place of the skull, Golgotha, Calvary, nails were put through his hands and his feet. And he was fixed to the heavy wooden beams of the cross. And then he was lifted up in his nakedness. And he was mocked, and he was jeered, and he was spit on. He was laughed at. But the Bible tells us that as he hung there, as he was on the cross, Jesus did a miraculous and amazing thing. He became sin for us. All the temptations that we have failed to run from, all the times that we've convinced ourselves it's okay to give in, all the times we've hurt ourselves and others in our sin, Jesus took that on himself every time that we've given in to the lives of the devil, every time we've lashed out and hurt others, every time we've appeased the desires of the darkness that lives in our hearts, the old nature that craves sin. Jesus took all of it, church. He took all sin for all time, the sin of our past, present, and future. And there on the cross, he paid the price for it. He died for it. Jesus took the wrath of God, the righteous wrath against all our sin in our place. And before he died, he said, it is finished. It's finished. 
The penalty for sin has been paid. And then after speaking those words, the Bible tells us that Jesus surrendered his spirit and he died. And so the prophecy from Genesis 3.15, way back in the beginning, came true. For the serpent struck the heel of the offspring of the woman. But Christ did not stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And in so doing, he crushed the head of the serpent. God's plan for reconciliation with his people comes true in Christ. For through his death and resurrection, Jesus took a bite to the heel, but he crushed the head of the enemy. For when we believe in him, when we rest in faith, when we receive all the benefits of his death, of his sacrifice, for through faith we are saved. Through faith we are reconciled to God. Jesus died for all. We only receive the benefit of his death when we trust in him, when we believe that he's real. When we rest in the faith that he has given us, for the Bible tells us that when we believe in Jesus, the dirty rags of our sins are taken from us and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is how we are saved. Through receiving the gift that Jesus has given. And Satan hates it when people are saved. He hates it that he's lost. He hates it that God keeps winning. He tried a rebellion in heaven and was defeated and was cast to earth. And there he had his way. He's he's the prince of the air after all. But he can't even win here. He tried. He played his ace. He turned God's beloved creation against their creator. And still God has a plan. Still God wins. For the head of the serpent has been crushed by the power of God through Christ Jesus. Ever seen an animal have its head cut off, but it's still thrashing about? It's gross. I've seen it with fish. I've seen it with chickens. They're a little crazy. They actually, like, chase you around. I don't know how they see you, but it's scary. And I've also seen it with snakes. When you crush the head and that body spasms, and if the body's big enough, it can do some damage. You get a big enough fish spasming, it can send someone overboard. Church, Satan's head has been crushed. He is lost. His body is still spasming. He's still doing whatever he can with the time that he has left. And so that can be scary, right? And he'll use every tool in his toolbox to freak us out, to divide us, to hurt God through us. But church, let us not forget who wins. Satan, for as strong as he is and as powerful as he wants us to believe that he is, he can't defeat the church. He can't stop God's mission. Jesus, speaking to Peter, says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We will not be losing this fight. Our churches will come and they will go. They will be planted and they will die. We won't be here forever, Calvary. But while we're here, we will push against the gates of hell. We will be part of the mission that God has called us to join him in. For though our churches die and close their doors, the church, the capital C church, the invisible church, goes forward. God's mission will not be stopped. The head of the enemy has been crushed. 
And as the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus all those years ago, may that reality, that truth, give us the courage to stand. When I read the last lines of our text this morning, it was hard not to think of Martin Luther, the man who recognized the abuses of the church during his time. And he took a list of 95 theses, 95 thoughts explaining how the church had fallen from her calling, 95 arguments that he would like to debate. He argued that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And it caused an uproar, a revolution, a reformation, as it were. For the next three years, Luther was urged to recant his statements, his 95 theses, along with his other writings and teachings. He was, he was excommunicated, and he was brought to trial at the Diet of Worms, an assembly of princes overseen by the Holy Roman Emperor. And there was a strong possibility that the 37-year-old excommunicated priest would be burned at the stake. you imagine going through all that at 37? I didn't realize how young Luther was. Like, I thought this dude was old. 37, goodness. Again, Luther was given every opportunity to recant, to save himself. All he had to do was retract his statements and all would be forgiven. And that would have been the easy thing to do. His life was not comfortable. He had people trying to kill him. He had the whole church of the day angry at him. He was a man standing before a tidal wave with a bucket. Hear the words of Martin Luther presented before the Diet of Worms on that faithful day. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Church, we may not be standing in Martin Luther's exact shoes, but the forces of evil are arrayed against us. The lies of the enemy assail us. And there are times in life when we feel like a tidal wave. We're standing before a tidal wave. Like we're just about to get swept away, annihilated, destroyed, forgotten. But when those times come, when you are pursued by temptations, when you are facing the evil in the world around you and in your own heart, when the adversary is lashing about and buffeting you and he is whispering his lies to the dark places in your heart, be encouraged by the words of Paul to the church in Ephesus, be encouraged by the words of Martin Luther. Paul tells us to put on the full armor of God that we might stand against the evil day. And having done all else, we stand for what is right. We stand for the gospel. We stand for forgiveness and grace and mercy. We stand for justice. We stand for truth. That we would not succumb to the lies of the deceiver, but that we would stand. And when we struggle to stand, because we will struggle to stand, church, may we be encouraged by the words of Martin Luther. God help me. God help me. God help us to be the people he has called us to be. To be the church that he has called us to be. 
For it is only through his help, his enablement, through the faith and strength that he has given us that we have any hope of standing at all. And when we fall, he is there to pick us up and give us the strength to stand again. And we will fall many times. And he will pick us back up every time. Every time that we let him. Every time that we call on his name, he will be there. For to him is the power and the glory forever and ever. He wins, church. He wins. And he carries us with him into that victory. What a fantastic, gracious, merciful, and loving God we serve. Amen.